Here we go, Monday night, just past 7 o'clock, time for Ira on Sports. True Oldies Channel, I'm Mike Balsamo, gonna be a great show, and Ira, we had a pretty great and hectic weekend, wasn't really planning on this, and then, you know, great playoff performances, golf got really interesting on Sunday, this turned out to be, you know, it's not football season, but we're still having plenty of, plenty of fun watching this stuff. How about I'm texting you all weekend, I'm like... Wow, Tiger's not playing well. The, all the big names were out. You were so up, disappointed. PGA. This is the worst leaderboard. <laughs> all these rookies. This looks like the uh, Wells Fargo Challenge type of <laughs> tournament. And then out of nowhere. And this, Justin Thomas, right here in Palm Beach County, this is, he, this shows just stay in the tournament. Just fight through the days. You might not be having the best because when you're looking at the leaderboard, you had Stuart Sink, who's like 45 years old. Maybe older than that. Bubba Watson is 40s. Mm -hmm. You have a bunch of rookies that are uh, there. And then you see Justin Thomas at the bottom there. He's like, just hang around there. You're seven strokes back. And then you might have a chance to steal a major, get your second major. So congratulations to Justin Thomas for winning that. But congratulations also for hanging around in a tournament that just like everything was going wrong. But whereas the other big names like the Roms and the Kepkas are all way far back, you hung around. And when certainly uh, leader uh, Miko Pereira, who was you know, does something really stupid on the 18th hole. Yeah. And, uh, but it wasn't just that we'll get into the tournament. I thought Miko was leaking water, uh, oil, whatever they want to say it, almost that whole day on Sunday. It seemed like struggling and struggling and struggling. Nobody could come up to make it. And Thomas put himself in a position to go go into playoff with Will Zayateras and then win the playoff. And there was really no doubt once he got in there. But we'll talk more about that uh, plenty tonight on Ira on Sports. Where have you been this week? He came on uh, Tuesday and he came on Thursday last week. So that was my going there. And so um, we'll get all caught up on that in a minute. Also, Jack Curry's going to join us at about 740. He's a uh, longtime regular of the Yes Network, knows pretty much everything there is to know about the Yankees. Good reason he's coming by. Oh, I'm so excited to have Jack. Anyone who's a friend, anyone who's a fan of the Yankees, uh, he's on the Yes Network. He's always giving the summaries. Well, he wrote a book with his partner on the Yes Network, Paul O'Neill. And the one thing about Paul O'Neill is, He's beloved. I mean, he won. He was part of the, that whole when they won uh, four out of five years. They won the, the yeah. championships, a key component of that. And then he retired. He wasn't like, remember, Jeter and, and Mariana, they had another like 10 years afterwards. Yeah. He sort of was older when he came to the Yankees. And before that, he won another title for the Reds. So he won five titles. You know, he's not going to be a Hall of Famer, but he's what, 2,300 hits, almost 300 home runs. But he's going to have a monument. He already has a monument in Monument Park, and he's going to get his number retired in August. So it's just a very interesting book. And I just love that Jack's going to come on and talk about the book, talk about Paul O'Neill. Uh, Jack co-wrote it with Paul O'Neill. So, you know, I was a young, a young man, well, not even as a young teen, when all that was happening. And I'll tell you, Ira, I was in New York. Paul O'Neill was that team. The fans, he was the fan favorite. It wasn't Jeter, wasn't Mariano. It was Paul O'Neill, and everyone just that city embraced him so much that it's great to see you know what he's gone on to do with the Yankees after that. And I'm sure the book was a fantastic read. We'll talk more about that. Right. I mean, it's it's talked about in the book. The one thing is about how much he hates striking out. How he how he how he just wanted to get a hit all the time. He didn't want to be home run hitter. I mean, everything we complain about baseball yeah. today is everything he and the Scott Brocious and the Mariana Rivera's and the Derek Jeters. And and the Tito Martinos. I mean, that Yankee team, that's going to be remembered for a long, long, long time. Again, they won three titles in a row in four and five years. You remember who he was traded uh, to the Reds? Roberto Kelly. Roberto Kelly, center fielder. Um, all right, let's get into the, the uh, meat of this, uh, Rep. You said you were at some heat games this week. You were. Let's talk about it. Yeah, I mean, game one was fun. I, I was went sort of VIP. I was in the club before the game. I got to sit with some Dolphins. I mean, I actually yeah. ran right. It was so cool. Nick Needham, cornerback uh, for the Dolphins. We had a good conversation. A lot of the Dolphins were there for OTAs. So it was like his first heat game that he went to. It was a great guy. Hopefully, we'll get him on our show. Um, but we looked. He could be third string this year. Yes. Th you know, third on the depth chart. Third so. on the depth yeah. chart and whatever. But uh, he's. Uh, they're very excited. I mean, just you know, just even talking to him. The excitement for the Dolphins is just everyone's talking about Dolphins, Dolphins, Dolphins. I mean, that one trade with Tyreek Hill just ignited mm -hmm. uh, everything with the, with the Fins. So what else? You're in VIP. You had great seats for the actual game. Both games, I sat 14th row. I love sitting. Like, you don't want to sit 
Like the one game, A-Rod, so game Tuesday, A-Rod was in the second row. Now, that has to be the worst seat for if you're <laughs> Alex Rodriguez, because you're in the second row, because the first row is courtside, of course, DJ Khalid, all the other celebrities. And then everybody's walking behind that. And then A-Rod's behind there, well, in that row. But that's a terrible seat. And yeah. you see the Marlins man sit there sometimes. That seat's <laughs> awful, because first of all, behind the players are all standing up. And secondly, everyone's walking back and forth. And if you're A-Rod, they're all staring and looking at you. Like, if I was sitting there, they wouldn't be staring and looking at me. Yeah. But they're all looking at A-Rod. And you can see that he was so annoyed in his seat. I was like sitting across from him. So he left. He wasn't there in the second half. We probably went to a suite. But I'm like, I like being like 11 to 14 rows up. You get to, you're almost like eye level to the players. No one's really blocking you. So I love that seat, center court. I was very fortunate to have two great seats for Tuesdays and Thursday. So what happened to your on uh, last, last Thursday? Well, on well Tuesday. Tuesday. Well, Tuesday would be the one. I mean, there was no Horford, no Smart. And now we had Dan Shaughnessy on the uh, on Monday who said, look, he doesn't think the Celtics are going to come to play. I mean, they're 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 going to, they're tired, they're worn out. He, he didn't really affect anything was going to, going to be anything. But, you know, Boston started out 13 in the first half and he were down 52-44 at halftime. And you're like, what's going on? But what did I say? I said, Spolstra is not the type of coach that's going to wait till the next game to figure out make adjustments. He's going to make halftime adjustments. And I sat right behind the heat bench in that section. And you could see Spolstra. The one thing he did different that for game one is that when they went to a timeout, usually they coaches stand around, they talk a little bit, and then they want to give the last pieces of information. They go right to the team and then they start to talk. So when the team comes out, they're given information. They know what the coach said. They don't just go talk to the team. He was coaching from the minute they sat down. He was in their face, adjusting, doing everything. I mean, it was like tremendous. And then that third quarter, 39 to 14, was the second best for the Heat all season, second worst for the Celtics. Boston didn't have a field goal for the first six minutes, second half. Boston shot two for 15. It was a 22-2 to run. And then when Boston made a 10-0 run about it to make cut it to nine, Tucker had a three, and uh, then the game was over. Miami was shot 10 for 30 from threes, Boston 11 for 34. But Jimmy Butler, 41 points, nine rebounds, five assists, four steals, and three blocks, shot 12 for 19. That stat line in the NBA playoffs, only Anthony Davis, Akeem Olajuwon, uh, David Robinson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar have ever even done something like that. And uh, that was, and it was, that was, was, I mean, Butler was tremendous. And I was concerned. Look, Bam Adebayo had 10 points and four rebounds. Like, where'd he come from? Tyler Hero had another bad game, eight points. But it was really the Jimmy Butler show. And at that point, you're like, what, you know, Tatum had 29 points, but you loved how Tucker played defense on him, how Struess played defense on him, and uh, Jalen Brown had 24 points. But they, look, Boston was, you wonder why Smart was in the game. And the weird thing is that Marcus Smart, was in that pink short outfit or whatever he was wearing, but he was on the court all the time. And, that's, and we're going to talk about the sideline of the courtroom. If you're not in the game, what, the rules used to be that you have to stay on the sideline. Yeah. He's on the court arguing with refs after every stoppage in action. Like, what is, what is, he's not even in the game. He's wearing street clothes and he's walking on the court. I, I just got to think, we talk about football all the time, the 15-yard penalties, you know, it, it's, you know, get back, the get back coach. You can't even stand an inch on the court in the field and you're going to get a 50-yard penalty. Why are they not giving technicals off. They're really finding them, finding the Mavericks for this, but they cannot be having these players just come on the court. They're standing on the sidelines. They're stepping on the courts. It's ridiculous, and it makes it hard. It's not safe for the players. It's not professional either. I mean, this is You might not be playing that night. It's still your workplace. You know what I mean? You shouldn't be engaging with people when you're not playing that, that night. This started during the bubble. When they were in the bubble, there was no fans and they wanted to be, have, the, they say, encourage the team to be more, because they're not blocking anyone, there's no one really out there. But like we're talking about the Maverick series, Theo Pinson is wearing a white shirt. Well, the the, the uh, Warriors were wearing white yesterday. So whenever he's standing there on the sideline, they're on offense, they see it, a white, they throw it to him. When Curry on the one game made a mistake, they can't, they should not be standing up wearing the, they can't, you know, I'm not telling what to wear, but don't, it's like, it's so like, it's like, again, it's so, it, it's beneath them for the NBA and Easter Conference Finals to have this, and they should be running on the court. I mean, this is the rule. Remember, Patrick Ewing got suspended for stepping during a fight, one foot on the court. David Stern said, "We're not going to fight mm-hmm. if you if you're on the bench and there's a fight or anything, and you step on, you're going to be suspended." And he stepped one. It caught, you know cost the Knicks advancing in the playoffs over that. It's a baseball pitcher can't wear any white on his hand or anything like that. Any added distraction not necessary and should be against the rules. We'll see if uh, they decide to do anything about that in the off season. What happened in Game Two? Well, in game two, I mean, that was... So the game starts out, and Smart and Horford are playing for the Celtics, and Robert Williams... So this, the Celtics had their entire complement of players. Lowry is still out for the Heat. So the game comes. Boston is down 10. And at that moment, the fans, it was 
It was electric. People were screaming. Like, everything's going. Like, everything's great. Everyone thinks the Heat, the Heat's going to go up 2-0. The Celtics are overrated. The Miami's going to the finals. And then Boston went on a 17-0 run. They made five three-pointers and six possessions. They outscored the Heat 60-21 to over the next 18 minutes. A 39-point turnaround. At halftime, it was 70-45. It's the largest ever in Boston history in the playoffs. And they are in the a lot. I mean, it was unbelievable. And then, you know, the third quarter, Butler came out. He scored 16 points. He cut it down. But it was by the beginning of the fourth quarter, there was the reserves were in, and it was empty. The arena, with about five minutes to go, there was nobody left in the arena. It was empty, except for Celtic <laughs> fans. And you felt you were in the Boston Garden, TD Garden or whatever. There was only Celtic fans, and they were letting everybody know that they were there. And it was just a terrible—I mean, you would never thought this was going to happen. I mean, Hero was terrible again, 11 points. Bam had six points, nine rebounds, and just did not play well. Tatum, 27. Brown, 24. Smart, 24. Grant Williams, 19. And uh, it was just a bad— performance. I mean, it was like people were saying, what should the Heat do? Should they bring Duncan Robinson uh, in? It, it says, okay, the point after that narrative after that game on Thursday was, if that's going to be the Celtics, they have all their players, there's no way that he can win. And also they're saying, look, the Celtics are going to blow out the Warriors if the Warriors make it. Uh, it. I didn't feel that, but I felt like I was shocked that the Heat just could not stop that uh, assault of, of that, that second from the second, you know, the seventy or sixty to twenty-one run. Do you know who believed that also? Vegas, because Vegas had after game two, the Heat were plus two hundred to win the, the series, which is crazy that they're tied now. They're minus one twenty after game three. Talk, tell us about that. <laughs> well, in game three, what a game! I mean, the, the Celtics don't have Robert Williams, but besides that, everybody seemed to. Start the game with everybody. If we didn't, didn't finish with everybody, but the Heat ended up winning, of course, that Saturday night, 109, 103. I, I think I'm going to get thrown out of my apartment complex for screaming when Struess made his three there <laughs> in the end, which is one of the biggest. I mean, he started the game with a three, and then Bam drove uh, for a two, and you could just see from the beginning of the game that Bam had a bio. Someone said, "Bam, you got to score." Like. You know, people were treating Bam as like, a play. he is the second best player in the Heat, besides Butler. He makes $30 million a year. Like, he's an important component of this team. He's got to, he's 20, you know, he's got to be a 20, 10 guy. He cannot be seven. And besides, he does a lot of other things, but he's got to play great. And he had, he came to play. I mean, he was, and it just, it was one of those big starts of game. It was 20 to six, then it was 24 to seven, then it was 29 to 10, and it was 39 to 18 at the end of one. And you're like, what are you my watching? You're waiting for the sellers to give a run and you're just like when's this ever going to end and then finally it was like 46 to 20 and you're like they're up 26 like I it almost felt like Phoenix Dallas where like Dallas was just going to say okay Phoenix you don't want to play you're waiting like at what point are you going to be like on a horse like you're going to be just so far back and at 26 I'm like you're almost there and then Tatum scored his first basket with eight minutes left in the second quarter and uh, then Tucker got a charge on Tatum drew a charge the only bad thing was Hero was missing still shot after shot which is he is just he was the only one who wasn't playing well but the I, what, what hurt me for the cell with the heat was at the end of the first half, and this was the difference with the Phoenix Dallas game, is that there was like two, three minutes to go, and that's when Dallas said, Oh, Phoenix, you're gonna come back, we're gonna go on like a 12 to 2 run or whatever and end the game where they went up by 30. This the, the Celtics went up to a 10-0 run, and suddenly that 25-point lead became 15. So suddenly now it's not so much of a game. And uh, in the first half, I mean it was just one of those things where you're just like, well, you still thought, boy, wow, the heat, they might have blown an opportunity, but they're still at 15. They come the second half and they make announcement they go uh so and so is out of the game and i'm like oh i thought they said kyle lowry but i saw he's on the court then they go i saw tucker because like he got hurt and i go wait he's on the court and then i like i was asked my mom i go what who's out and then wait where's wait why is oladipo's in the game where's jimmy <laughs> butler jimmy butler is out of the game like out like everyone else is getting hurt this, uh, jimmy butler said he was out of the game i couldn't believe it it was like one of those things like oh my gosh like they're gonna lose this game now <laughs> and uh and oladipo was in and thankfully for the heat they uh uh, Struess made a big three, uh, and then it was like, and Oladipo just kept making steals. And and it was, the Celtics were pathetic with the turning of the ball. They turned the ball over 23 times, leading to 39 points. They, I have never seen a team turn the ball over. It is like, they threw passes, I, I want to say Baker Mayfield type passes, like where they're throwing those three people. Like, there were passes like, what were you thinking in that <laughs> pass? Like, there were three, now he, I give Spolster credit, they went from zone to man to man, they put Tucker on Tatum, they were, they were switching everything up, causing problems. But Jalen Brown like tried to dribble between two like, things that you just wouldn't even see anywhere else. Mm. And as much as the and I said the Heat 
just hang on, hang on. It's just, you know, at the end of three quarters, it was still 87.72. It was 25.25. So as much as the third quarter was a complete and utter mess, the Heat hung in the game by 15. And Brown at that point had 26 points in Tatum. What's the other thing I kept saying? I think Jalen Brown is just as good as Jason Tatum. And I know the first couple of games didn't seem that way, but you saw this game when he had 40 points. But uh, but then but then it was just, it was it was difficult. I mean, they threw it. They, they, the refs they put a T on Gabe Vincent. Now you see what Draymond Green does in the other series where he's screaming. Gabe Vincent, yeah. he doesn't, I, I watch him play. He doesn't complain about anything. He's like the quietest player. T, they go, one little thing he calls a T. And all the deep, over Depot could not shoot anything, but he kept stealing the ball. Like that five steals was amazing. And then it was 93-80 and the Celtics scored 12 straight points. And that Jalen Brown had this three with 240 left. And then I thought, it's over. Like it is totally done. The Heat are going to lose. And then Struess comes back and makes a three. Tatum turns the ball over. Then Bam made a shot, made it 98-92. And Tatum turned it over again. And they ended up winning the game. I just could not. That Struess three saved the Heat season. That was, I don't know, it was like 40. I could not believe he made that. And it was great. It was a great story. He had 16 points. Bam at 31 points, 10 boards, 6 assists. Lowry played 29 minutes. And Oladipo, for someone who only had 5 points, he had 4 steals, but it seemed like he won the game on defense. And Hero was terrible, shooting 4 for 15, over 6 from 3. And at the end of the game, was interesting. It was when Hero's chance to be in, and they kept Oladipo in and did put Hero. And now we see that Hero is out for tonight's game. So I think there's a point where, you know, Hero last year played terrible. This year was tremendous for the regular season. He was a 20-point game scorer and was the sixth man of the year. Playoffs, he's been a 12- or 13-point game scorer, not played well at all, and now he's going to be out this game with an injury. It's 721. This is Ira on Sports. <clears throat> True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsama. We'll have Jack Curry join us at about 740. Don't forget to follow Ira across social media at Ira on Sports. So you want to move on to the uh, West here, Ira, because this one's getting that. This one might be over by the time we're done with our show. <laughs> <laughs> no, no uh, the Heat game is tonight, but I, I'm excited. I just want to jump back to the game. I am excited about tonight in Boston. I think if the Heat, if the Heat win, they'll go to five and they'll win. I, but I, I expect the Celtics to win, t- uh, tie at two-two. This series looks like it's going to be seven games. Sunday, I'm going to be in uh, FTX Arena Sunday night. You know, it's going to be crazy in a game seven. This just has that feel that yeah. it's just going to be. The Boston is. They every time they lose, they win. They're like 4-0 on games like that. So, but excited for tonight's game. But we're moving to Dallas Golden State. You're right. That game series is... <laughs> I, I guess what I've been looking at this series is this. I cannot believe... First of all, Luka Doncic, as people get to see who he is, and it's great. He's a tremendous player. And I can't believe Phoenix is in the series. Every time you look at Dallas, you're like, their defense is average at best. I don't know how they shut down Phoenix. I don't know how Phoenix could shut them down. I can't... I just... Cannot, I can't believe that they took one game from Phoenix, let alone four. If I'm a Suns fan and I'm not, I'm sitting, I don't understand it. Like, I literally, it's like if Kansas City played Cincinnati that second half and they just kept losing that second, like every time, like, I don't know what happened. I just don't know how Phoenix lost because I don't think Dallas is good. And now we're left with a series that's 3 0. That's what it is. And you got to give, and, and also, for the Warriors, Andrew Wiggins, people are saying, well, Andrew Wiggins is like, like Max Struess. Well, first of all, he is makes he's max he's a max salary player. He makes thirty-five <laughs> million a year. He was the number one player in the draft. He's from Kansas, one star players in college, and he is a great player. He's just on that team, he's people view him as maybe the third option behind Curry and Thompson. But he is a very good defender and he's playing Doncic tremendously. And that's great. And it's because if they put Draymond Green on Doncic, Green would foul out. And they really can't put Clay on Doncic. He's much taller, but 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 Wiggins has done what he's helped what the Warriors done. And Doncic scored two 40-point games. What he's helped them is that he's allowed to play him one-up. He can play Doncic one-on-one, and that means they can cover everyone else. And that's why the rest of the Dallas Mavericks are shooting like zero for uh, Kleber and Bullock last game, or zero for 12 and three-point shots. They can't, no one else can score. They're letting Doncic get his 20. Not letting, but that's all the damage he's doing, and Wiggins is, Wiggins is great, and he had a dunk last night that was... He had a dunk. I don't know if I would tell that game, but Google that dunk. It was amazing. And the rest called it offensive foul. Yeah. I'm like, offensive foul? That could be the worst call. It was like the best dunk mm-hmm. in the world. I mean, it's like, it was almost like if you had a slam dunk competition and someone said, that's an offensive foul when there was no one there. I mean, Doncic was diving out of the way for the dunk. How in the world would you call an offensive foul on that? But game one, Golden State wins 112-87. And uh, what I like also about Dow- Golden State, now we're nervous because he got injured, was Otto Porter. He's played great for them. Uh, sort of, he can guard every position too. 
And uh, but it was it was a situation where it's 88, 69 at the end of the third. Uh, Golden State State had won that period like by 10, and just like it blew away with it. I mean, it was like Doncic only had 20 points. He was six for 18, uh, seven boards, four assists. Brunson and Dinwiddie didn't do much, but really it was uh, Wiggins with 19 points, Curry with 21, Clay Thompson 15. It was just a group effort. It was one of those easy type games where you expect Golden State to win. But that's how I expected Phoenix. Exactly what I expect Phoenix to do in the in in the in that series, but they didn't. In Game Two, Golden State comes back and wins 126-117. Now this game was a little. Dallas came out really strong. They were up uh, 23 to eight, and, uh, and and Warriors started out slow, turning the ball over, making mistakes. But that's where Golden State Curry started to to shoot better, making those. But still, at halftime, it was 72-58. But then in the third period, Golden State went on a 25-13 run and was kept themselves into the game. And that was like really at the end of the game, it was like Wiggins started playing better, and it just all it all came forward. But I felt like Dallas had Golden State down. And they, they just couldn't win. That was a game they really almost had to win to go yeah. up 2-0. And, I mean, Doncic had 42 points, 8 assists, and 5 boards. Brunson had 31. Bullock, 21. You're thinking, well, that's what they have to do. They shot, they made 21 three-point shots, 21 for 45. So that's almost the best they could possibly play. Golden State had 16 turnovers. But, you know, in every game, it, they, they go, um, Dallas was out-rebounded by 16 in Game 1. They were out-rebounded by 13 in Game 2. And those extra rebounds were extra points for Golden State. And I think if Golden State— there's Golden State's frustrating because it seems like all they have to do is throw the ball for the cutters and just make the twos. Stop shooting the threes. Like I know that Curry and Thompson are the best three-point shooters of all time, but that it's so open. And Dallas, I think, is so poor defensively. Just throw the ball, make some cuts, make the twos, and win the game. Like stop messing around. And uh, but I think that was the type of game because I think that led into last night's game when Golden State ended up winning 109-100. And uh, it was like it was Golden State again started slow. They missed 15 out of 18 shots. Draymond Green talking, yelling. At one point, the Warriors were two for 15 from three. But again, the Warriors play bad, and they're up by one at halftime. And then in the second half, um, Dallas was a complete mess. I mean, they... They were uh, they were told they were they were nine for thirty four from three nine for thirty four not good it just it was terrible and and Wiggins you know again played great on Doncic dominating that way Curry at thirty one points and eleven assists and it's just like you have Doncic at forty points and you have Brunson at twenty didn't win twenty six but it just didn't seem like they could just you know stay in the game and and Doncic there he's a great player I just. You're saying, well, he needs another superstar. He dominates. He's like Harden. He's so ball dominant. He doesn't need another superstar. I just think he needs other players that can just make all their threes. Like, they should just have, they need everyone to hit threes and they're going to win because of the way he drives. He's such a fun player to watch, but they're just, it's not there yet. And this is a surprise they're there in the first place. So <clears throat> that's an interesting, um, you know, what you say about comparing him to James Harden, because here's a good stat. With Luka Doncic on the court, they're minus 61. They're plus 19 when he's not on the court. <laughs> I'm not saying that he's, you know, the way James Harden is now, but that is kind of a damning stat. Like you said, he's very ball-centric. So if he's scoring 40, they're losing, and they're in the negative when he's out there, what's the answer? It's like you said, maybe you just got to get two, you know, sharpshooters on the outside to be able to counter this because it doesn't seem like you're going to be able to win a championship like this. Yeah, I mean, I think that was the, I mean, the point is that it, Bullock yesterday was 0 for 9, Kleber was 0 for 4. I mean, they shot, I said 9, for, I, the stat line, 9 for 34, and they're missing the threes, and then Golden State's running, and Golden State, that's what I didn't understand with Phoenix, and, and but I got to give the Heat credit. And so this is where I'm going to go back to the Heat series a little bit. I like what Struce does at Oladipo. When they're when they're running and doing defense, they're, maybe they're not going to block a three, but they're going to they're going to move fast. Like they actually run over there and try to block. Mm -hmm. I saw Golden State like Jordan Poole is a little lazy and doing something. It's like when they, when they're the Heat are playing defense, you might have an open three, but it's you better shoot a little faster. Like you know they're that a Heat, you know a Heat <laughs> player is going to fly. And that's when we talk about quarterbacks. You know quarterbacks when you know that the defense is a little faster. Maybe you might have to throw the ball faster. Maybe you're a little nervous in how you th make your throws. And if it's just that split little second is the difference. And I think that's why the Heat have caused uh, Boston to have so much trouble shooting threes. And that's why I think, you know, that's it's just like, I think that's what what I like about the Heat playing defense. No, it's part of Heat culture. They're, they're going to be playing defense. You're going to sit if you're not you know, running out to get guys. Well, that's why Duncan Robinson isn't playing. People keep yeah. asking. I mean, Duncan Robinson cannot play in the series. He's a liability on defense, and they can't afford to have one person on the court being a liability on defense. Boston has too many scoring options, and they can't have Duncan Robinson on the court. It doesn't fit with them. Now, what are they going to do? He makes $19 million in the next three years. They'll figure it out later. But the way Struess is playing, 
I just, I mean, you really have to like how he's playing. And you just wish that Hero would somehow figure this out. He is inconsistent. He doesn't play good defense. He's not making his shots. It's not, he's not. And it's just, it's amazing that he up 2-1 with Hero. Their second leading scorer. Second leading scorer has really done nothing. Mm -hmm. 729 Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. About to be Iron Hockey here as we get into this. <laughs> By the way, about halfway through the first period with Florida and Tampa Bay, it is tied at 0 0. Florida needs this one tonight. So let's start with the Rangers and Carolina. The Rangers were miserable against Carolina in the regular season. They played them four times, lost all four games. I wasn't expecting that much, but it's really been a tale of two teams in a sense here from game one to what we saw uh, yesterday in game three. Yeah, I mean, uh, New York was down to I mean, 2 1 2 0. Carolina wins the first two games. And then, uh, but the Rangers couldn't score really much on the Penguins. Yeah. You'd expect them to score well, but now they finally got the goaltending, what they were missing the other games. But then they win in game three, a must, a total must win. But I, you feel like they cannot beat Carolina at home. If they don't win tomorrow night, this series is over in five. Yes. Like, so that's the point is that they, it's, it's another must win for, uh, for the Rangers. Yeah, you lose two games at home. You know, you, you're just, you're never going to be in good shape here. What I'd be worried about, though, if I'm either of these teams, is playing Tampa Bay in the next round. Because what they're doing to Florida is basically putting on a clinic. And I'm not going to be surprised if this series is over tonight. Well, I mean, I think when you look at Tampa Bay, look, they struggled a little bit in the regular season, but it's almost, they have so much of that Yankee feel, like in the playoffs, like they know what to do. They have the goaltending and the goaltending complements the Stamkos. I mean, they seem to have their stars always are getting the key goals. They're making the big plays. They also are good. This is what I give, this is what you have to, I think people neglect to, when they start analyzing things. There are teams that get better as a series goes on. And I think they can feel and they can learn. And there's some teams that are like Phoenix Suns to me, maybe aren't good. They yeah. have now Lost some series. But these other teams, they seem to get better. They seem to understand what you're and, they, and every game they, they just keep improving and improving. And it just seemed like they're dominating. And, and that's what, what and they understand when the playoffs and how it's played. Uh, but I guess the mix of having Velzleski at goalie and then just scoring, it's a per, it's the perfect compliment. When you look at all these other teams, some teams have the good goaltending, but they score, others don't have the good goaltending, but score. They seem to have everything. And that's why they're two-time reigning Stanley Cup champions. One good example of that, Ira, though, what you said about getting better and be being there before, the end of game too, where Mackenzie Wieger, the, the Panthers defenseman, essentially gives up with three seconds to go. Nikita Kucherov uh, finds a play right in front of the net, wide open net, and they win the game with three seconds left. And that's something that Tampa Bay would never allow that. And then <laughs> here they are scoring it. So little things like that are the difference between being a two-time Stanley Cup champion and not. Uh, let's go to the West Coast. Your, your buddy McDavid, you've got a, a new favorite player besides Sid the Kid, and well, he's, he's living up to it. Well, you got a first game. I mean, I, this is the series one. Of course, it's hard when I was at the Heat games. You can't watch the other games because you're, it, it was ridiculous. They it's put too the, fast. The, but, no, but they put the Panthers the same time as the Heat on the mm -hmm. same nights, so you can't watch it both. But I watched, of course, the Calgary series in Edmonton because that's the off-series thing. And uh, and Calgary, uh, that first, <laughs> can you believe? I mean, they won 9-6. I mean, I can't can't believe that's a, even a, a hockey score. It was, mm -hmm. it was they were up six, uh, six, what, six one, and then six yeah. two, and then they was six six, and then they ended up winning nine six. And then in the second game, Edmonton wins five three, it was zero zero, and then McDavid had three assists to Kane in the second uh, period and uh, for a hat trick in the second period. And then in the third, in the third game last night, Edmonton won four nothing, four one. And this is something I really didn't see coming. I think Calgary's a very good team, and McDavid is kind of taking over the series. They said they're going to try to play him twenty eight minutes a game. Average player plays 18 minutes, something like that. So almost double the workload they're giving him. And they, they might need it to win this series, but he's looked good doing I it. I just, he's, you don't have to know hockey just to turn it on and say what, he, he his skating ability, he's so big and he gets the puck and everyone else is like, they they, they pass all the time. He, the, no one can get the puck from him. He is like, it's unfair. He's, he just pushes people out of the way. He also is faster to the puck and his, and his hands skip, his so skill at, with the, with the puck. Stick handling. The stick yeah. handling, stick handling. That's how he <laughs> I mean, he's just tremendous to watch. He's fun. And it's just, a, it's great. You can just watch, you turn down there and say, oh, that's McDavid. He, he just stands out there as being so dominant and it's rare I mean I remember when Gretzky 99 you know and Lemieux mm -hmm. 66 and, and just McDavid when he's out there you just rest see him every time yeah he's greatness every time he touches the puck in the uh, final series in the West I didn't think St. Louis would win a game here it's been a little bit of a more balanced series than I thought though between Colorado and the Blues 
Yeah, I mean, it's 2-1, and I guess the issue was that Colorado injured the St. Louis goalie, Bimington, mm -hmm. um, and that's caused a lot, of, a lot of friction. I mean, it shows you in a playoffs, like if this goalie's really good and you knock him out of the series. It's and that was, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Colorado hurt him, and then they won the game, and then the guy was giving, the Colorado player was giving an interview, and Bingham, the goalie, walked by and threw a water bottle at him, which is, <laughs> you got to have that as exciting. Good, classy stuff. Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel, Mike Balsama. About uh, six or seven minutes, we'll get to Jack Curry of the Yes Network. We talked about golf at the beginning of the show, Ira. What an epic Sunday. I don't know if you want to call it an epic collapse, an epic comeback from, from JT. Regardless, it was good golf. It had me, you know, glued to my TV as well. And congratulations to, you know, Jupiter resident Justin Thomas on taking down his second PGA championship. And Miko Pereira is also a Tequesta resident. Yeah. So, and yeah, and so that was from Chile. And I was at the Genesis and saw Joaquin Neiman from Chile. So now we have two very young Chile players who are Chileans or whatever you want to say, who are playing great golf. And... I just, wow, it was, uh, <laughs> first of all, I mean, to have a pairing of Rory McIlroy, Jordan Spieth, and Tiger Woods on Thursday and Friday to watch oh, they them were play. with the pairings on I Thursday. mean, that was just awesome. And Tiger, I mean, to see it, he shot a 74 on Thursday and to come back on Friday and shoot a 69, it looked really, he looked, you know, it was like he battled for it, but to make the cut, you know, Tiger just has to make the cuts all the time. And I mean, he had, he was, after struggling, you look, after that first day, you're like, boy, I don't think he's going to make the cut. And then he's going to, but then he, he does, which is great. But uh, Rory, after a 65 game, I mean, everyone's like, oh, is this Rory's tournament? to lose. Yeah. I'm like, that is not a question to ask. <laughs> like, do not talk about Rory's tournament to lose. We've seen Rory win, you know, he's all over the place. So don't say he's tournament to lose. I have to say this about Rory McIlroy. They, they had a thing about the 12th hole and they showed every single golf ball in the 12th hole was like a par four, four, 470 yard hole. And there was uh, hundreds of balls, and they're all in one place. And then way ahead of them, it's not Bryson DeChambeau who wasn't playing, pulled himself out, but Rory McIlroy with three at the three top drives. So he was out driving mm -hmm. everyone all day, and he just the mistakes. I mean, he is just with the, he has the best swing, some of the best gains, but it's just course management is awful. It's crazy that it, uh, you're not the only person, you know, as, as he was leading and, and looking good. I didn't think it was his tournament to lose because he hasn't been able to string together four good rounds in two years. So I, I wasn't anticipating anything. Yeah, I mean, then on Friday, uh, Will Zarateras took the lead. He shot a 65, and then we saw Enrico Pereira with an 8-under uh, with a 64. JT was at 667. Bubba Watson coming out of nowhere yeah, who saw that <laughs> with a 63, and he was at 5-under, at five, at, uh, at and he tied the course record of Tiger and, and Ray Floyd's there. And Tiger, of course, made the cut. But we analyzed who missed the cut. I mean, how about this? Dustin Johnson with a 73 and 73. And Scotty, who would have ever thought Scotty Sheffield no, was the guy? Me. What were the odds on that? Like, I mean, this is a person who's contentious. I mean, it, and, it, and you watched him play on, he had a 75 on Friday, and I'm watching him, and he doesn't even care. Like, I go, Scotty, this is real golf. Like, what is going mm -hmm. on with you? It's almost like he was throwing it on purpose. Because Sergio Garcia, 73 and 74, and Daniel Berger, a 73 and an 80 on, yeah. I mean, that's amazing. That was uh, some of the. I mean, Dustin Johnson and Scheffler were the surprising who missed the cut, and then Saturday was painful to start. I mean, Tiger he started with a bogey and then just like won the water and this and I mean he battled not to make. He had shot a seventy nine. He was hurting and I didn't. I have to admit I turned it off for the last four or five holes. I couldn't watch it. I mean, he made yeah. a seventy nine, but then I thought it was a smart move not to play. There was no reason. the The weather went from ninety degrees to fifty five degrees and rainy and cold, and clearly that was not good for his leg and he was limping around and it's just. I, I, thankfully, he he uh, he's, he didn't stay. You know, he, he withdrew. Um, I mean, there's any person who can say that Tiger's tough. I mean, this is the last for I me. Mean, no, for sure. <laughs> and uh, Will Zaratera started the day bad, three bogeys, and that's where Pereira. You know, Pereira took that lead on Saturday early, and he just kept it until late Sunday. And it was, <laughs> and he was up there. And at one point on Saturday, he had like it was like he was at um, at one point he was like at at uh, ten, and Zaratera was six, and he dropped like nine, ten, eleven. He went went back and bogeyed and it was tied up with Zarateras and then he came back and then he finished the day at nine under. Zarateras was six and Webb Simpson shot a 65 was one under and JT finished the day he shot a 74 he's at two under he's seven strokes back and that's one of the biggest you know so he but he still felt like he's in it because ahead of him was Zarateras who's a rookie Matthew Fitzpatrick none of these guys really were in there and Rory had a double bogey on six in the water a bogey on seven a bogey on eight then a triple bogey it was um, I I mean, Rory just said, oh, if you think I'm in the tournament, I'm going to be completely out on Saturday. I'm not going to put any pressure on myself. I mean, he was like minus 10 on. It was unbelievable to think what would happen to him on that. So let's go to Sunday here because this is where it got interesting. Like you said, you know, we, we were talking that morning and saying, like, this is not really good. Like, that they, you know, the 
you can't even name some of these guys that are in contention right now. The only name we know is Justin Thomas, and he's so far back. Interesting that Cam Young and, Sa- and Will Zalatoris, who were second and third most of the day, were college roommates at Wake Forest, yeah. which is funny because Cam Young is pretty stocky, and Will Zalatoris is probably one of the skinniest yeah. players on the tour. But they were at Wake Forest. But Pereira started the day, you know, three strokes up. He immediately it's it, it, it gets close. Like he uh, Zalatoris, b- b- birdies, Pereira bogeys, and they're tied. But then he got it back up to nine. And then again, Zalatoris goes down to six. And it's like he's coasting around. And then again, these birdies, like the bogeys, I mean, it's not, he had trouble. But every time that he was tied with either Camung or Zalatoris, it just seemed like he never lost the lead. He always had sole possession of the lead. And then on 17, uh, Thomas birdied to get to five under. And on 16, Cam Young, who was still in the mix, he was at five under too. He double bogeyed to go five. And then 16, Zalatoris had like a one-inch putt. Like it was like he was just tapping. Missed it. <laughs> and he goes to four under. He makes that putt. He, he wins this tournament. tournament. Yeah. He cost himself a major. So it was like Pereira was at six, Thomas five, and Zalatera's at four. And then on 18, uh, Justin Thomas was within 10 feet of the hole, and he was at, still at five, and he just misses that putt. He makes yeah. that putt. He goes to six. He misses it. And you're thinking, okay, that was his chance. And then on 16, Pereira made a, he finally made a big putt. He made this 10 foot par. And uh, so he's at six, and Thomas is at five. But on 17, Zalatera's birdied that. And when he birdied that, he was like, he was he jumping up. That gave him to five. And then on 17, Ferrer, he missed that birdie by, I, I thought the ball was in. It mm. was a millimeter. It stopped. One rotation. Um, one rotation. He makes that. He wins the tournament. So he he makes, so he stays at he stays at uh, one over. At six, he's at minus six. And Thomas was at five. And then Zalateris parred to stay at five. So then you go to 18. And the question is, like, the announcers were... Like he's on 18, and the announcers were like talking about I don't know, not about the golf shot. Yeah. He looked like he walked up there and it was raining, or he was hungry, or he had a beer that he had to get, or something. Have you ever seen a player play a hole that fast? Nah. He put the ball down, took a club, and just ripped it, and it was the weird. It looked a baseball stroke. It, I don't even know what that it was. It looked like something like he forgot to play golf for a, a split second. I've never seen a follow through like that, and you knew before the ball even got in the air. That's there's no way this is a good shot. Yeah. So remember, he was he if he was he was one up over Thomas and Zalator. So he knew what he was. Yeah. He was one up, one up after All that. All he had to do was par. To win. All he had to do par on a hole that he had birdied and parred and whatever. So he hits the ball and it goes in the water. Mm-hmm. And then I mean, it, it wasn't like Van Veldy where he had a triple bogey, but mm-hmm. he had a double bogey. So even at worst, he's in the playoff with a bogey and he still misplays yeah. everything else. Like I think that was the other thing. What's frustrating is that he could have probably would still parred that hole or bogeyed that hole and got in a playoff giving a chance to JT in the playoff, probably no chance. But yeah. the fact is, then he double bogeys and now he finishes, he's in third place. And then with Zalateris, and you, as I said, when Zalateris, it was a three-hole playoff, you knew JT was going to win that playoff. Justin, yeah, he's just, he's got this killer look. I mean, he doesn't look like an intimidating guy in the slightest, but when he's competing, he's got this other level. Not, I don't want to say it like Tiger, you know, when he was in his prime, but he can just like, you can look at him and say, there's no way this guy's going to lose. Did you see that one putt he had on the second playoff? Oh, he puts it in and as it's going, he was following it like, right. I, to it. He's running to it. He's running. He's like, I made the shot. Like you said, he missed it. The, golf, the ball hits the thing. He picks it up and he ran to the next tee box. Yeah. Like that was like, it's like, we're going, I'm winning this. Give me the Wanamaker cup right now. It's all mine. Like it was just, I love that. That was like, mm. and I wanted to say is he reminds me, I was at the players a couple of years ago and he was behind. That was when uh, Lee Westwood was playing well and Bryson was playing well. And he did the same thing. He hung around all those days. And then it was like, he was ahead of the other golfers and just ended up winning. He uh, birdied 17 on a, an amazing birdie and I was just and I was not following at all I was following Bryson and uh, but it was sort of like that where he hung around hung around and just like took the players so now that gives him the players and two majors which is you know and 16 other titles really. you know and, and we've said it before here on this show there's certain guys that just in majors are always there they may not win but you're going to see top 10s out of them top 15s we you know long said that about you know kind of push Rom to the side a little bit and praise Brooks Kepka uh, Brook Brooks Kepka obviously something's not right with Kepka right now but the case for Justin Thomas is there I mean this guy shows up to play in big uh, big situations and what about Will Zalatoris who's now played in seven majors and has five top tens this kid's going to be a force to be reckoned with for the next decade trying to clean up at these majors uh, yeah Will was sort of like the anti Brooks I mean he is just in these majors every single time and he just we talk about him not having a tour card I think he does have the tour card now I got to figure this out if he has mm-hmm. it but the fact is he's not playing as many tours but wow he's just in these majors he's in seven majors he's he's done tremendous at every single one of them yeah and it was it was exciting like I said I really did not think he had a shot against Justin Thomas there. 
Still played good. Good for him to, you know, take home second place. Poor Mito, great after the tournament. He was so kind of just happy to be there. He wasn't upset at all, at least at that point. Cost himself $2 million, which is a little rough, you know, from, from first to third. But You know, so what Naki even said, he goes, Mito is very confident in his ability, which maybe shows what happened on 18. He goes, and also in Chile, we look at Yaki Neiman as like this great. He goes, in Chile, everyone thinks he's better than me. So, <laughs> and they're friends. And he gave up golf when he was 15 years old. He was at IMG. He said, I don't like playing here. I'm away or whatever. He didn't play for two years. He gave up 15, 16 years old. He didn't, he didn't pick up the clubs for, for two whole years. Started playing again when he was 17. So he's a different, you know, he's a different type of person. He didn't want to move to Palm Beach County because he thought it was too expensive. That's why he went to, <laughs> to, to Cuesta. Now he's certainly even missing the $2 million that he can afford living in Palm Beach yeah, County. I think he'll do just fine. He can move a little bit. And I, I think that's what people are saying. Is it, this, like, Venvaldi, this sort of messed up. And this, people look at Miko saying, okay, he's not going to, this is not going to ruin his life. This is going to be whatever. He'll, he'll, he's going to be in contention again. He'll learn from his mistakes and go from that. They don't think this is going to be the last we hear of him. Uh, we don't have too much time till we have to get to uh, Jack Curry here on Ira on Sports. Well, let's talk about the Preakness, Ira. And it was a weird one because for the first time that I can remember in my life, the Kentucky Derby winner did not run in the Preakness. Yeah, it was just, it was it was crazy. And it, one of these races where you really have to feel sorry for Epicenter. Epicenter was the favorite in the uh, Derby, Derby yeah. finished second. And then out of nowhere, when Rich Strike came in and won the game, and favorite in this and finished second again and had a really bad race. And, and early voting, who it's on shame because they pulled early voting out of the Derby, it had qualified to be mm-hmm. in it. They pulled it out and, t- and said, we're going to go for the Preakness, which you don't want to see this because then you're going to see it's, no one's going to win Triple Crown if everyone's going to be playing these games where yeah. they're going to run against. And then Secret Oath, which is the Philly, which we, we were hoping to have a Philly run well. But uh, in the end, Secret Oath finished fourth. But it was really Epicenter came and, and Armageddon was there. And early voting, which has led every one of its races, only raced four times, but everyone it sat behind Armageddon and just really just pulled away at the end and ended up winning the race. Really good run from from early voting. Epicenter, they're saying, won't run until Saratoga, which is like September. So probably one race before the Breeders' Cup. So it's going to be a long layoff for Epicenter here. Um, a couple of other of the big names, like Mo Donegal, they're saying, we'll see next week uh, that ran in the three pre- weeks. Yeah, three those, weeks. in three weeks at the Belmont. But yeah, kind of been a weird season. And I don't know where to really go from here. I don't know who's the best out of this entire crop. Is Epicenter still the best without winning? So Well, you'll see Rich Strike. We'll see what Rich Strike in the Belmont. If Rich Strike wins the Derby. And a lot of people wins- think he's not going to run. If Rich Strike does not win the Belmont, then you're going to have a Belmont without, you would have a Belmont without anybody from the Derby of Preakness. You're really taking the luster. I mean, is this someone who, I mean, I was at, when Justify and American Pharaoh, I said, I've been a lot of places. I don't think when American Pharaoh was going down that stretch and winning that, it might have been the loudest I've ever heard anything. Really? That was that loud. I mean, that was amazing when the Winterville Crown. And, and so now you're going to have a Belmont that no one really is. The normal horse race. Yeah. Um, let's move on to a little uh, Formula One here before Jack. This Curry. was in Spain. Uh, uh, Charles Leclerc, who we saw who won Miami, uh, was on the pole, looked <laughs> like he was going to run away with this. Ferrari was doing well. And then at lap 27, he goes, I've lost power. How many times people drive a car? So I ran out of gas. He lost power in his car. So he goes out. And it was interesting because Verstappen was struggling with his car from Red Bull and Perez, they were they had the lead. And there was a point where the, the, uh, their, the per- Horner who runs the team says, uh, to Perez, uh, to Perez, let Verstappen pass. And he goes, what? I don't want to let him pass. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Because, I understand it. And so they let Verstappen pass and win. because, But but Perez was on the wrong tire. He actually had to had to pit and fix his, and do his tires. But uh, it was, it was there were some interesting parts where George Russell from Mercedes was holding off Verstappen and Perez. There was a point where he was ra- racing really well. Mercedes, which had been struggling all season, started to feel like they, 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 they were playing, they were better. I mean, you had Russell and Hamilton in the top six. So two of the top six. So it seemed like they were getting their act together. But Verstappen ended up winning. Perez was second. It was in second place, and Russell was a third. So they head to Monaco in two weeks, or, or next week is the is the Monaco, which is the famous Grand Prix. Even though it's not that great a race because it's more a procession because you can't really pass. So it's more of a name than a race itself. You win the pole. The pole was everything about that. So uh, real quick, tennis before Jack Curry. Well, French Open starts, uh, and it, what they did, we're, we're just going to complain about this forever. They put Djokovic and Nadal, two of the, great, the two greatest players of all time, besides Federer, they put them in the quarterfinals because one is seated one, Nadal seated five. This stupid seating thing is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And then Alcaraz, Alcaraz, who we've seen has been the top player who won Madrid, who won Miami, are, uh, they, they now have him as uh, in the same draw. So we're going to have all of them on that one side, and in the finals, maybe Titsipas, but you'd like to see Nadal. 
Nadala, Djokovic, or Akaraz played Nadal at the yeah, finals. Separate they totally missed this up, and they could move people around. How you see Nadal fifth at the French? He's won it 13 times. Like, there's got to be a point where you win. Okay, how about we make a rule? If you win it 10 times, you're Nasita number one. I mean, like, how about that? And then the women's side, uh, Igo Swiatek cruised to, uh, today, and she looks like this is tour tournament to lose. She has a lot of Americans on her side of the draw. Keys, Abagula, Daniel Collins. So we'll still have to go through some Americans. That'll be fun matches to watch. And the bottom half of the draw, you have Coco Goff, Sloane Stevenson from America, and then you have Emma Raducanu, who won the uh, U.S. Open from England, and Leila Fernandez, who was who she beat in the final. So it's it's interesting. I, I'm excited for the French Open, and uh, this year they actually don't the final sets. They're with tiebreakers for the first time, so you're not going to see the final set being like 20 to 16 or 18 or whatever. They have to have a, a, a final set tiebreaker. Let's go to Jack Curry. This is Iron Sports. Okay, we're honored to have Jack Curry. Uh, a sportscaster for the Yes Network and co-author with Paul O'Neill of uh, Paul O'Neill's biography, or autobiography, actually, Swinging to Hit, Nine Innings of What Baseball Taught to Me. Jack, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. Ira, it's a pleasure to be with you, and uh, thanks for giving us a chance to uh, talk about our book. So Paul came out with this book, and it's, it's, it's interesting because his number is going to be retired by the Yankees on August 21st. Of course, his number was 21. And so that, is that sort of what the reason for the writing of the book was to, in conjunction with the retiring of his number? Great question, Ira, but I'm going to tell you a, a great journalism story here. So this book was finished. This book was done in late January, and Paul calls me in early February and says, I just heard from the Yankees that they're retiring my number in August. And he was very emotional about it. And then he said to me, but you can't tell anyone. So I couldn't tell the editor or the publisher yet because the Yankees were going to announce it in a few days. And this was your literal and figurative stop the presses because we had to then stop producing the book. I interviewed Paul. We did about 2,000 words on the retirement of number 21 and tucked it into one of the later chapters. So... No, we actually already were working on the book for close to a year when, when he got that great news about his number, and it was kind of a surprise to him because the Yankees had already given him a plaque in, in Monument Park uh, several years ago. And sometimes the number retirement goes along in conjunction with the plaque. He didn't get that at that time, and so he was thrilled to hear that the number was now going to be retired. And and we're happy to hear it because hopefully people will want to read about it in the book. And then number 21, and it sort of teased it at the end, that was because of Roberto Clemente. Uh, Clemente's number was 21, and he was a big fan of Clemente's and was able to actually get a fake autograph. He said one time his dad signed the autograph and said it was from him, but it was a, it was, it was a hero of his, and he was, that's why he wore 21. His dad was a Cincinnati Reds fan, of course, growing up in Ohio, but the first game Paul ever attended was a Pirates game, so... You're astute, and you read the book closely because you're right. Here's little Paul O'Neill out in the right field uh, grandstand, as high up as you could be probably for a ticket. And as his father wanted to take a picture of him, he made sure to situate it so that who was in the background? Roberto Clemente. And Paul was complaining about not getting Clemente's autograph that day. So his dad, being a, a dutiful parent, disappeared for a little while and brought back a Roberto Clemente autograph on a sheet of paper, but Paul had a couple of older brothers who were a little savvier than the seven-year-old and later told him, don't you think that signature looks a lot like dad's? And of course, Paul hung on to the paper for a little while, but the point you're trying to make is it stands. He ends up years later getting handed number 21 by the Reds and where's that for the Reds? Where's it for the Yankees? And to him, it does tie back to Clemente and how his father was such a fan of an opposing player and the way Paul describes it is there aren't many people in baseball history who were probably the best player on the field every time they played and he puts Clemente in that category. Wow and then I what I liked about your book and I've I've actually sent the book out of or pre-ordered that you can order it on Amazon and, and Barnes and Noble and everything um, it's coming out to this week but what I'm interested about is the hitting style. We've had Dave Parker on our show. We had Rod Crew on our show. It seems like I have all the hitters that are like line drive hitters, not the home run hitters. And, and you spend in the book about how this whole problem that he dealt with, even there in the 2000s, like, I don't want to hit home runs. I would hit a line drive hitter. And everyone was like, Lou Pinella, no, you got it. You're six foot four. You got to hit home runs. And, and that battle between it. But then, you know, you talked about it, the whole detail about how to hit. It's anyone who's a hitter, who has a son who's a hitter or a daughter who's a hitter, this is a great book because you really go into the whole minutiae of how to be a great hitter. 
Right, and the thing I, that Paul stresses, and that we try to stress too, Ira, in the book, and you do a great job of just detailing it, is Paul says you have to be comfortable as a hitter. You have to be confident. So there are many different ways to hit. But he does go into detail about why his approach worked for him and why he does think it can work for others. And Paul was taught at, taught at a young age by his dad a line drive swing that, at the end of it, had a slight uppercut, which if you read Ted Williams's book, the science of hitting, that's the way Ted Williams hit. And Paul was a lefty hitter. His father thought that he reminded him of Ted Williams. So Paul doesn't go in and criticize today's hitters, but a lot of guys today, it's more of that, that uppercut that starts from the beginning of your swing. Paul liked the idea of a level swing because he thought that kept his bat in the strike zone longer. He also, Iris, swung at the top of the baseball. And when you try to swing at the top of the baseball, that's because you want to make contact. Guys who are hitting at the bottom of the baseball, they're trying to send it 450 feet, but there's also a chance you're going to miss it more often. And then you tell the story in the book. It actually went for researching this interview. I watched the Kramer. I've seen, I've seen it a hundred times. I want to see it again about when uh, Kramer was on Seinfeld and, and he went up to Paul O'Neill and said, I have a kid. He tried to get something back from this kid. And he goes, I, uh, Paul O'Neill hit two home runs. And then they have the scene of him <laughs> meeting Paul O'Neill and saying, I promise this kid you're going to hit two home runs. He goes, wait, I'm not a home run hitter. Why are you making this promise? And why did you promise two? <laughs> I was, as I was writing the book, Ira, sometimes, I mean, we all have our little places where we escape. So some nights I'll, uh, I'll watch a couple episodes of Seinfeld because it just makes me laugh all these years later. And that episode came up and it was funny because we had already written that. And, and that was Paul's line. I mean, Paul said that throughout the process and we put that in there, but he didn't, even though he hit almost 300 homers in his career and had some big homers in the postseason, some big homers for the Yankees, he felt that he... When he hit a home run, everything almost had to be perfect. He had to catch the pitch. He had to be out front a little bit. Whereas if he hit a line drive to left center field, he could do that in his sleep. And and that's the player and the hitter that he really wanted to be more so than the home run hitter. And then when he came up, it was interesting. He was there just he came up about a two days or three days before Pete Rose set the all-time hit record beating Ty Cobb, which is probably exciting to be that. And then Pete Rose was his first uh, major league baseball manager and he loved uh, playing for Pete Rose. Yeah. He, re- he really respects and reveres Pete. And in working on this book, I interviewed all of Paul's managers, uh, Pete Rose, Lou Pinella, Buck Showalter, Joe Torrey. And to hear Pete talk about Paul, the, the respect was mutual. But you're right, he's barely in the major leagues a minute. <laughs> Does get his first hit as a pinch hitter in his first uh, appearance, which he said was a huge relief. And then shortly after that, here's Pete Rose breaking the record. And O'Neill talked about being sort of the equivalent of the accidental tourist. He's on the field with all of these people congratulating Pete Rose. And to him, Pete Rose is almost still a poster on his wall. But he liked Pete because Pete had a two-strike approach almost every time he was at the plate, and that's the way Paul tried to hit. And Pete was a guy who, who wanted to hit 300. And Ira, you and I know that we've gotten to a point in Major League Baseball where averages aren't <laughs> talked about as much, and, and OPS matters. And I get it. I understand that that's a clearer picture. But in Paul's era and in Pete Rose's era, you're trying to hit 300. And what mattered to Paul was hitting 300 and knocking in 100 runs. Those were the things he wanted to do. And not striking out. As anyone who watched Paul O'Neill play, when, when he struck out, everybody you get a, away from him. You don't want to be anywhere near a water cooler or anything when he gets a strikeout. But then his next manager was Lou Pinella, and it was interesting how so he gets to the World Series with Lou. They win the World Series, but the friction between Pinella and O'Neill because Pinella's one saying, "Got to hit home runs. You're a big guy. Hit him." And that's why you, it was in the book. You said Stick Michael from the Yankees were like, "I knew, I know Lou. I knew Paul. I knew they weren't getting along. I'm going to make this trade, and he's going to be perfect." And he said the first thing he did when he called O'Neill was he says be yourself I want you to be a, a line drive hitter we have enough home run hitters here in Yankee Stadium yes Dick Michael made that transition so much smoother for Paul because he and his wife lifelong Ohio residents weren't real sure about going to New York and adapting and Stick said exactly what you just pointed out listen we've got Mattingly in our lineup and I see you as the kind of hitter that Mattingly is does he hit home runs yes he does but more than that he's a line drive hitter trying to hit the ball to all fields so Paul does go out of his way to point out in the book that he knows that Lou Pinella's interests were his best interest in terms of trying to make Paul a better hitter. They just, they just clashed. They had a different route that they believed they could get to 
to make him that better hitter. And ironically enough, Ira, the guy Paul ends up befriending and loving playing with, Mattingly, with the Yankees, benefited significantly from Lou Pinella's hitting advice. It worked for him. It was more of a weight shift approach. That didn't work for Paul. Paul was more of a guy who kind of stood tall and then had a leg kick. But, yeah, he, he his transition to New York was helped greatly by Stick calming him down and relaxing him. And then people forget that in the late 80s and early 90s, and even before that, the Yankees were not the Yankees now. And it was really Paul O'Neill who came, and then they got Mariana and Jeter, and they turned that around the 92-93, and that they were losing games beforehand. They didn't just suddenly win four out of five World Series. That They had been bad and then turned it around, and, and that was Paul was sort of part of that. And he enjoyed and, and embraced that aspect of, I'm going to turn this Yankee, we're going to turn it around here at Yankees with these other players. Ira, I started covering baseball in New York in 1990, and... There were some bad Yankee teams in 90, 91, 92. Buck Showalter and Gene Michael are the two who got this team into a rebuilding mode, from rebuilding to respectability to contending. And then Buck and Stick were out of those jobs. Buck, of course, went to the Diamondbacks, and Joe Torre takes over. And then they, they become winners. But when you talk to people who are around that team, a lot of people point to the demarcation point as that trade that O'Neill came from Cincinnati for Roberto Kelly. He brought, he brought an energy. He brought an unwillingness to be mediocre to New York and just a drive and a consistency that the Yankees were probably missing and a professionalism that I think they needed. And it's kind of interesting that a kid who grew up loving the Cincinnati Reds, won a World Series in Ohio within his first few years in the major leagues, ends up being a savior of sorts in New York with the the glorified Yankee dynasty, Paul O'Neill was a huge part of that. And I just had Dan Shaughnessy of the Boston Globe on last week. We we're talking about the Boston Celtics, and I asked him the question about uh, Tatum and Brown, and I said, do they get along? And he's like, well, I, you know, he wrote the book about Bird and, and McHale and Parrish. He goes, I can tell you how they got along, but no one really knows. I don't know if they get along. But in your book, it's clear that with the, the core four, how are they going to call it, the Bernie Williams, I mean, this team, that besides, they all got along very well. Jeter and Mariana, like they were very tight, and I, that's why they won four World Series in, in five years. Yeah, O'Neill's relationships with the Yankees start with Mattingly. He loved Mattingly. And then the next guy he probably was became really tight with was Bernie Williams. Mattingly, unfortunately, retires after 95. He's not around for those winning times. But if you came to the ballpark, Ira, and, and your mission was to win that day, and that was your focus, and that's what I saw in a lot of those mid to late Yankee 90, 90 uh, Yankees teams, Paul O'Neill was your best friend. He wanted to work. Paul O'Neill had a mission to come to the ballpark and succeed. So Posada after that, Girardi, uh, Brocious, Tino Martinez. I'm sure I'm forgetting people. Uh, we mentioned Bernie Williams. But anybody like that, Paul was definitely aligned with them because he wanted to win. That that was the focus. He even talks about it in the book how part of the reason he retired was there was nothing left to accomplish. They, they had won. They, they, they had won four in five years. They didn't win in 2001, the year he retired. But it, it was time to go because they, he felt, I did everything I wanted to do. And then Joe Torre was the perfect manager for someone like Paul O'Neill, the calming influence, and, and actually for that entire team. So he talks a lot. You talk in the book about his relationship with Joe Torre. I, it's interesting, Ira. Buck Showalter's doing great things with the Mets. He worked at the Yes Network with us for the last couple of years. I've known him for 30 years. There was something different about Torrey on that 96 team. Buck, phenomenal X's and O's managers, but, but you just mentioned it, the calming influence, kind of the relaxed style. Joe had a soothing impact on that team, and when things were off the rails a little bit, Joe has told me this subsequently, that he would never change his personality. He would never want the team to think that he thought anything was going wrong because he wanted them to stay on an even keel. That's how he had to succeed as a player, knowing that how long the season was. You're going to have peaks and valleys. And I think that went a long way with those Yankee teams and the relationship Joe had with them. And then when we talk about baseball since then, in the last 20-some years, 
the difficulty for teams to repeat, which hasn't happened, and also to actually stay relevant and very good year after year. Maybe the Dodgers, per se, are like that, but just the winning, the fact that they won in 1996, then they lost in 97, but they came back in 98 and had this ridiculous year where they won 114 games, but then to win again in 1999 and then 2000. That's just amazing that that team was able to stay together, that is core group of players, and win those three World Series and have those years to, you know, end with the expanded playoffs and everything. Pretty amazing. Ira, when we look back at baseball history, you've got the Big Red Machine. We've got the Oakland A's teams that won three in a row, uh, the Yankees in 77 and 78. You just mentioned those other Yankee teams. Everybody always talks about the records that won't be broken and DiMaggio's streak, Ripken's streak. As, as I'm listening to you say what you just said, and as I'm covering baseball year to year, I wonder the next time we might see a franchise do what those late 90s Yankees teams did. I'm not sure we're going to. Three in a row and four out of five, it's so hard to win. And then if you get to the world, you get to the postseason, there's more rounds of postseason now. And if one team gets hot, I mean, did anybody think the Atlanta Braves were, were going to win the championship uh, last year? Did anybody think a few years ago the Nationals, who started out 19-31, and 31, were going to win it. Jeter told me something once, and this was a guy who won a lot. Jeter said it's not always the best team that wins. It's quite often it's the hottest team. It doesn't mean the team that goes 82-80 and 80 is going to win the postseason. But if you win your 90-plus games and your team's feeling great about itself going into September and you've got some hot pitchers and, and you've got a strong bullpen – you you can get a title. You can grab a title, and that's why winning multiple, man, that, that's going to take a long time to see that happen again. We're talking to Jack Curry, author of Swing and Hit, Nine Innings of What Baseball Taught Me, uh, about the autobiography of Paul O'Neill. And the one thing we, we you know, Pacers fans that aren't even Yankee fans, they remember these players, the Scott Brocious and all that, because during the playoffs, people like O'Neill had these amazing uh, just he hitting home runs and hits and everything, and that's what they were with clutch hits. I was surprised when I saw you. I knew that in 2000 he was tremendous against the Mets in the classic Subway Series where they won, but he was never the MVP of the World Series. Wetland, Brocious, Mariana, and Jeter were all MVPs, and Bernie and Paul were not MVPs of the World Series, even though he should have been maybe the one in 2000 over Jeter. Had a great, he did have a great postseason. He did have a great, a great World Series. You're right. Um, Jeter had a big home run in that series, made, made some big plays, was consistent as well. And to add one more to the ledger, if you go back to 90, Ira, I think uh, O'Neill hit 474 in the ALCS, uh, NLCS, but then he, he's mad at himself. He went 1-for-12 in the World Series, and, and his good buddy Chris Sabo, who had a, an okay NLCS, went nuts in the World Series and, and won the World Series MVP, so... Knowing Paul, though, I think he'll be saying he would if he was on with us right now. He'd say, "I'm happy with the rings. I'm okay not having the MVP. I'm happy having those five rings." And I like the part of the book where he talked about the first time in '96 after they won the title, he came back from the Canyon of Heroes, and he's like, "I go to work every day, and I see the the fans, and I go to see the stadium. But until you go into the Canyon of Heroes downtown and see the what million people that showed out, do you realize, wow, there are so many Yankee fans out there?" There were a couple things that Paul told me during the writing of this book that jarred me, and that jarred me because I grew up in the tri-state area. I'm a northern New Jersey kid who's been going to New York City on the train since I was 13 years old. So I know the massive size of the area that we live in. And to hear him say it, 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 it made sense. Yeah, there's 40,000 there every night. In his own mind, Paul's thinking, yeah, there's 40,000 on a Tuesday. Ah, 40,000 on a Wednesday, you, you don't multiply it by the, they said 3 million in that 96 Canyon of Heroes. Whether or not that number was inflated, who knows, but that's the number that they gave. So you're right, he was absolutely floored by that, and it gave him a new appreciation for the fan base. Yeah, I mean, that was that's tremendous. And then it was funny that you said that he retired and he said he was done after the Arizona series and then the middle of the next year he gets a phone call it's like hey you want to be ready to play and he thought he might have to come back in the middle of the year and he was like rested and uh, but that never came to fruition the Yankees had a couple of uh, they were using Shane Spencer and John Vanderwall in right field they had an injury in the mix there they put an infielder into the outfield and he looked uncertain out there Enrique Wilson and they needed to do something quickly so Torrey did approach Paul about coming back Dick Michael also got in on it, and Paul was entertaining the idea, so much so that he was planning to go on a vacation with his family. He took a glove and was long-tossing on the beach with his son, and then before ever 
Paul ever had to make a decision, the Yankees made a trade and acquired Raul Mondesi. So he jokes around about it and says he never actually got into the cage, so he doesn't know how rusty he would have been. And then Paul says, knowing me, I would have come back. And I first two games, I would have been 0 for 10, and I would have said, that's it, I'm retiring again. So it, it lit the fire in him again for a little bit, but as you said, it never actually ended up happening. And then the one final thing, Jack, is that I, I, I loved the conversations he had in the book with all with other so it describes the conversations he had with other stars, and especially like A Rod, because they they didn't really cross paths, but the fact that they would sit there and discuss, even though they had different hitting styles, but he was just so intrigued and always trying to pick, even whether it's uh, Ted Williams or whatever, picking the brains of other star hitters, and the fact that other star hitters re- knew him, and they would you know would spend all this time discussing hitting, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I, I reached out to A-Rod to interview him for this book, and he, he got back to me in about 15 minutes and said, I'd love to talk to you about Paul O'Neill. I loved watching him. I loved who he was as a hitter, and we went back and forth with that. And then, as you said, we did a whole chapter on a call that Ted Williams made to Paul and just a great hitting mind giving Paul some advice and just how floored he was that Ted knew his swing and that Ted knew what kind of hitter he was. And that's what we tried to do in the book. As much as it's Paul's hitting principles and hitting theories, we also wanted to bring other hitters that impacted him throughout his career into the book. Well, Jack, I really appreciate you coming on Iron Sports today, talking about your book, and uh, I can't wait for other people to read it. It's a great book. As I said, go out to Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and pull the book. It's called Swing and Hit, Nine Innings of What Baseball Taught to Me, uh, Paul O'Neill, and we've been talking to Jack Curry, uh, co-author with the book with Paul. Thanks so much, Ira. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Truly fascinating stuff. Don't even have to be a Yankee fan to to have enjoyed uh, hearing from Jack Curry and enjoying this book. What are you doing this week? Um, Wednesday, I'm going to see Game 5 and maybe Game 7. Can you imagine? Game 7 and the Heat Celtics Sunday. So those are the two things here in South Florida. We're lucky. It's it's warm. It's June. People think it's everyone's going, you know, leaving Florida, but you got to have two great basketball games here. We're out of time. Thanks so much to uh, Jack Curry for stopping by. He's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on Sports.